right, people uh, in the lobby, get comfortable. This is uh, uh, because it's Christmas Eve, it's Jesus' baby's, uh, baby Jesus' birthday. This is an extended hour and a half sermon. <laughs> so I realize it's crowded. It's a little bit warm and you got places to go. Uh, how many of you, it's actually, I promise it's not. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, I, it's, it's not even called a sermon if it's not a half hour. It's called like a homily and it will be a homily. Um, how many of you, uh, it's the same service this evening, but how many of you are honoring baby Jesus double portion and actually planning on attending uh, in the evening as well? Go ahead and eat, raise your hand. I just want to know who the, who, the, who the real Christians are. Good job. Okay. Um, okay. All right. So did you notice that we didn't sing any songs like Jingle Bells, uh, Santa Baby, or the great pop classic, All I Want for Christmas is You by Mariah Carey? We sang songs that are trying to, attempting to articulate what Christmas is all about, and that's a very difficult task. It's not a knock on those other songs, but the kind of great Christmas hymns, if you will, are trying to put flesh and bone on something that is both sacred and paradox. They're trying to articulate the the most complex of realities. See, because Christmas happens all the time, we can sort of get used to the, the Christmas story because we celebrate it every year. And so there, there's, there's a tendency to not stop and really reflect on how crazy the story actually is. I mean, it is profound and significant, the claim that is being made by the Christmas story. And we can become so used to the Christmas story that we... we we lose sight of it and we start to think that other stories are better than the story of the life of Jesus. We could be tempted to think these other stories are greater, stories that are good like, like Star Wars or, or Harry Potter or, or The Hobbit. But you need to know those stories, those stories are mere shadows. They are just the outline of the ultimate story. All good stories find their source and structure in the story of Christmas and Easter. And I mean that literally. Every good story finds its source and structure in the ultimate story, the grand narrative of Scripture. And that's easy to forget. And so that's a very kind of nuanced or complicated way of saying the Christmas story is super good. Let us not forget it. And the story begins a long time ago in a garden far, far away. It would have been better if I said galaxy. (laughs) Well, depending upon who you are, 50% of the audience were really disappointed with the last Star Wars. The story begins in a garden. Two people, two human beings, Adam and Eve, and the story immediately introduces us to an intruder, a villain, and all good stories have a good villain. It could be like a monster, a dragon, or an evil emperor, but in our story, the villain, the intruder that's introduced is a serpent. Now, a lot of people can get mixed up on uh, or caught up on this idea, you know, can snakes really talk? And the Bible says that there's a talking snake in the beginning. It's not important whether snakes can talk. It's important what this snake said. And this snake said to the first human beings, you can define right and wrong. You can define good and evil. And ultimately, he said, you can be like God. 
See, there's this kind of order in creation, and you have this, this three-tier system, and picture it in your mind. You have God up top in the one position, human beings in the second position, and the rest of creation in the third position. And human beings are set to be in the middle, and they are supposed to worship and serve God, who is number one, and in doing so, when they do His will, they do His will on earth as it is in heaven, humanity, creation flourishes. Everything goes well. When human beings recognize their proper position in creation and acknowledge God and do His will, the planet, humanity, creation flourishes. But the issue is this. Human beings were, were, were not satisfied and they wanted deep in their bones to be like God. They weren't happy being in two. They wanted to be the rulers of their own life. They wanted to exalt themselves. They wanted to ascend the ladder and be just like God. So when the serpent made the offer, <clears throat> the first human beings took and ate of that fruit. Now, it's not important, <coughs> excuse me, it's not important what type of fruit this was. People always wonder, you know, is it apple, banana, mango, it's probably a mango. You ever had a good mango? You'd probably face death for a good mango. It's not important what type of fruit this was. What you need to know is that the type of fruit this was was forbidden. And the promise was made, you too can be like God. And the first human beings ate it. And from that point on, the serpent's snare strangled the first parents, the first human beings. But if you're taking this story for all of its worth, you understand that the serpent's snare not only strangled Adam and Eve, it strangled all of humanity. The people who wrote Genesis, the people who tell you the book of Genesis, they want you to know this is not just the story of Adam and Eve, this is the story of us all. Every single human being has said in their heart, I don't want to be number two, I want to be number one. I want to exalt myself, I want to care for myself, I want to do what I think is right, I want to define good and evil in my own eyes and take the place of God. And so, the serpent promised life, but in reality, it came death. And the strangle of the serpent and sin found its way around our Next, the word sin is interesting. The story says that sin comes into the story and the equation at this point. It's a difficult word to define, um, but suffice to say for now, from this point forward, sin and serpent are in the equation, and human beings say in their heart, I want to be like God. Now, the crazy thing about this thing called sin is that it enslaves you. I mean, you think you could be in control of it, but sin enslaves humanity, and the more you sin, the more you become enslaved to it. Now, I realize to the modern ear, no one wants to be told that they're a sinner. I mean, really, it's like the worst thing to say, especially on Christmas Eve service. Like, some of you are like, I got tricked, and come out, and we'll be here, and it's only five minutes in the sermon, you're already telling me how I'm a sinner. Here's the crazy thing about it. This is the power of it. And it's something the modern mind doesn't want to hear, but it, it, it's the, the, the message the story is trying to tell us. Sin is so powerful, it enslaves you, and all the while you're enslaved to it, you don't even acknowledge its existence. But if you're honest with yourself and you're courageous with yourself, if you look deep into the shadow of your being, you know sin and serpent run through your veins. The serpent's bite, the serpent venom is in you. 
as well. You know, people usually deny that. They go, no, no, you know, I'm a good person. You usually define yourself as a good person when you're comparing yourself to someone who's a little bit worse than you. Like, I'm better than him. You know, better than, better than Greg Quirk. I mean, God's going to let me go to heaven. But a little bit better, probably, maybe. I'm surely better than that other guy. You guys know that guy, Sam, who works here? I got to be better than that guy. You know, when you define yourself up against someone who's not a bad, surely. But have you ever noticed how the things you want to do in life you don't do and the things you don't want to do you do? It's e- Try to be a good person, like really good for a day. It's a lot harder than you think. And so sin finds its way and it enslaves us. And look around at the world. It's not just like one or two bad guys. It's serpent venom in us all. Look at the world. I mean, this place is broken, messed up, fallen. Some of you can't even watch the news anymore, right? Because it's so depressing. Evil and injustice run rampant. And so deep in kind of the human soul, deep in our bones is this longing for someone to fix the world, to fix this place. And all throughout history, people have thought certain individuals would come and fix this. And it's not just in history, even even in modern times, like, look at, next time there's a big election cycle, don't, just watch how, and, and this applies to everybody, liberal Democrats, conservative Republicans, the Libertarians, Green Party, whatever party you fall in. You'll fall into this trap, that was cool, um, of thinking like, if someone, we could just get somebody elected, you know, everything's going to get better, the world's going to be a better place. And granted, there's better leaders than others, and things go up and things go down, But no matter who we've elected over the several thousand years of human history, the world is still broken, fallen, and messed up. So deep in our soul is this longing for someone to come right the world of its wrongs. Father tells the story of a daughter praying, and he, he overhears this young girl, probably five, six, seven years of old, and, and she, she prays this, dear God, please take away all the owies in the world. Dear God, let there be no more owies. Take away all the owies. Now, in one sense, you could say, that, that's a cute little story by a kid, but in, in another sense, that is like, crazy profound. That little prayer, don't let there be any more owies, is a microcosm of the kind of sum total of human longings. All of us hear, God, when will evil and suffering be done away with? I mean, if we were just go around the room right now and share all the pain and hurt that's just in this, how you've wronged others, how people have wronged you, how you've lost loved ones, how you're insecure because of job or economic issues. Pain, physical pain. Some of you, it actually hurt to come to church this morning. It hurts you physically. I mean, all of that is there, and so this little girl's prayer is a microcosm of all of human longing. God, please fix this world. In the Old Testament, in the Bible, this same longing is repeated over and over again. And so people in the Old Testament long for the day for God to bring about mishpat. Mishpat is a Hebrew word. It means justice. They long for the day that God would bring the world mishpat. 
And again, it's translated in English as justice, but when you translate mishpat as justice, you're not doing justice to the word. And the reason is this. In English, for the most part, justice has a connotation of um, bad guys getting what they deserved. And that's the type of justice that, like if you're like me, it's like, you know, someone cuts you off on the freeway and then you see the cop pull them over, like later, and you're just like, mishpat, glory to God in the highest. It's the way it works. But mishpat in Hebrew is more than just bad guys being punished. Mishpat is doing the right thing to those who are lacking. So if you were to care for the needy, you would do mishpat to the needy. If you were to adopt an orphan, you would give the orphan mishpat. If you cared for someone who is who is losing a home or wrestling with whatever situation you are doing, mishpat. So this deep longing in human beings to have mishpat has been there all along. Now the good news is it's not just an invention. Uh, Early on in the pages of scripture, and you can picture this on the screens. We did this on purpose so you can use your imagination. On the screen is a foot stepping on a snake. Because on page three of the Bible, there's this promise that God says, one day I am going to take out the serpent. And it's not important that God talk to a snake. What's important is the promise. God said, I am going to defeat the serpent of old. I'm going to do away with evil. There's going to come a day where there's no more suffering, no more evil, no more harm, no more pain. It's a promise, page three of the Bible. The issue is, is that after you go to like page four, five, six, seven, eighteen, nineteen, page thousand of the Bible, you see the serpent being victorious over anyone who's challenged him. So this is idea that there's going to be a leader, a king that's going to come and undo the works of the serpent to defeat him. But anytime someone actually tries to be good, someone tries to be righteous, someone tries to, to be the person who will undo evil in the world, they fail again and again and again. So when you look at the story of the Bible, it's a story of the best humans we have to offer failing. Adam versus the serpent, fail. Abraham fails. Moses, Moses fails. David, Kenny, I mean, this is a family service. I can't even talk about what David got himself into. Even the best of us fail. So the serpent in the scriptures is depicted as the undefeated champion of all time. Now on the screens, you're picturing a snake like slithering around. And now on the screens, you're going to picture a man looking up at a very, very long ladder going to the sky. Because the story that's found in Genesis is the story all human beings find themselves in, the story we find ourselves in today. It's human beings trying to ascend the ladder to the number one position. We say in our hearts, we want to be like God. And in thinking that will work itself out, we actually find that we fall to the serpent again, we sin and we face death. The story of humanity is a story of a people who wanted to find good and evil in their own eyes. 
The story of humanity is the story of people who want to exalt the self and glorify themselves into the position of being number one. But the crazy, bizarre, mysterious paradox of Christmas is that while humanity was trying to ascend the ladder to be God, God himself comes down the ladder to be man. And God comes with us. Emmanuel means God with us. The story begins with people, humans, trying to usurp, defy God, and take his place on the throne. And the great twist of the story is God comes off of his throne and enters into our world. Now remember, the way of the serpent is this. The way of the serpent is the way of power and violence and aggression and greed and lust, selfishness and self-exaltation. So when you picture God coming down the ladder, your kind of expectation should be, God's going to come with his own power, his own might, his own aggression, finally just destroy that serpent. Good old-fashioned beating to that snake. That's what you would expect. But God does the opposite of that. And it's sort of like a movie. Once you've seen it ten times, you look back at what's done, and then you go, that's exactly what should have happened. That's exactly what God would do. God wouldn't come in power and might and violence to destroy his enemies, but God comes as one of us in a teenager's body, as a baby in a mother's womb. It's the most vulnerable way to enter into this world, to be born to a poor Jewish girl in the first century as a baby. Now again, you have to understand, you've heard that a lot, and because we start celebrating Christmas like a month before Christmas, we've all been, we've become numb to that. Humanity wanted to take God's throne. God himself left it and came to us in the most vulnerable of ways. Now the question is, how does the Prince of Peace then fight this battle. How does the Prince of Peace declare war on the serpent? <clears throat> most, most wars are, are won and the victorious in, in one of two ways. You could either destroy all the opposing armies, like you, you take them out, you kill all of your enemies, uh, but God isn't going to do that because he wants to, to rescue humanity, not destroy them. Or the other way is like you sign a peace treaty, right? Uh, you, you know, you get this, I get that, uh, and usually whoever has the upper hand in the battle gets to dictate the terms of the peace treaty. Now, here's the thing. If you're a student of history, do peace treaties solve all the problems? Sometimes for a little bit, but if you're a student of history, you know that even some of the best supposed peace treaties led to even greater wars. Because someone down the road goes, I didn't, I didn't agree to these terms of this peace treaty. I didn't agree to this. And so war flames up again. So Jesus is not just going to come kill all of his enemies. He's not going to sign a peace treaty with the serpent. So how does he fight this battle? The Son of God has to forge different type of weapons to fight this different type of enemy. This supervillain has to be destroyed with a secret weapon. When God wages war on Satan's sin and death, the war of the Lamb, the war of Jesus, will be fought with self-sacrificing love. Now, in one sense, 
Some of you go, oh, it's so beautiful, and some of you go, that's so cheesy, and some of you are going like, yeah, that's awesome, we fight with love. Um, our culture is obsessed with love, so as long as you say like, like love is the answer to all things, like everyone goes, you're right, it, it is. But, but here, here's the problem. When we talk about love in our culture, we always talk about it in the abstract. It's not concrete. And when we talk about love, it's sort of done in this subjective or relative way. And what I mean by that is when we talk about love, we usually let every single individual define what they mean by how they think they should love the world. And so love is abstract and it's dependent upon the person. Or to put it in another way, our culture lets you define love, hence you define what's right and what's wrong in your own eyes, which should remind you of a story from a garden long, long ago. And a culture that does what's right in ever their own eyes, as long as it makes them happy, does that sound familiar? This is the story all along. And so God says, human beings can't define love right. They just make it about themselves. Some of you know this, because even when you do something charitable, like, you know, deep down, you're like, I just did that. It just makes me feel good. It's like in some, some weird way, it's, there's this, this way of self involved in everything. And so God says, I am going to define love. Love needs a face. Love needs flesh and bone. Love needs something concrete that people can do. And so God wraps himself in flesh and says, do you want to know how to live your life? Do you want to know what living a life full of love looks like? Look to Jesus. And I mean that like simply, like you open up your Bible and you read the stories, the gospels, the life of Jesus. If you want to know what living a life of love looks like, you read the life of Jesus and you get to see it in human form, not in abstract philosophical ways. You see it in human form. And what does love look like when it came? Well, what does the life of Jesus look like? It looks like someone who cares for the vulnerable, the needy. It looks like someone who elevates women in a culture that suppressed women. It looks like uh, valuing children in a culture that didn't care for children. What does love look like? It, it looks like touching physically the leper, the person with the disease. It, it looks like welcoming the racial outcast into your house, into the table. So if you want to know what love looks like, you look to Jesus. And when you look to Jesus, you see, man, love isn't all, we all think we want to just be loving people, man. It's not easy, and we all don't truly deep down want it. Because love looks like a servant washing people's feet. Love looks like someone coming to serve even their enemies. At this point, there's a, on the screen, a, a little picture of baby Jesus. Mary's holding him. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I'm kind of joking around about this, and I mean, it's working out fine. But you should probably come back later because the pictures are all really, really, really cool. Um, so what happens when Jesus loves the outcasts, invites the poor, the needy, when he, when he serves, when he does it again and again and again? Well, Easter happens. Good Friday happens. And Good Friday and Easter actually mirror the Christmas story. At Christmas, there was no room in the inn. And so you send baby Jesus to be born in the manger with the animals. 
And at his death, there was no room to give this man of love and service a death of dignity. You kick him outside of the city walls and you nail him to a cross. Here's the thing. If you've been brought up for your life in this culture, which majority of people in this room have, there's probably five to 10% who haven't, but majority, you have been told since the day you were born that the answer to your problems, the answer to what's wrong with the world is inside of you because you're so special, unique, and awesome, and such an amazing, incredible person. The answer, don't you know, it's always inside of you. The story of Christmas is the exact opposite. What's inside of you is serpent venom. And someone from heaven had to come and give you a cure. And when he came, he came to subvert the powers. And he didn't use the weapons of the serpent or the weapons of earthly leaders. He came with self-sacrificial love. And the crazy thing is, is the life and death of Jesus is not just the way at which you become like saved and go to heaven. The, the life of Jesus, the cross, is, is not just the means or mechanism by which you become a Christian or, or get saved or go to heaven, although that, that's true. The cross is the actual mode of operation that you must adopt if you're going to follow Jesus. And what I mean by that is, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, you got, you got to say, I want to live like Jesus. And that means serving and caring and loving and being compassionate doing justice, doing all of those things. And trust me, if you're honest with yourself, like no one, no one wakes up in the morning saying, oh, I just want to be like an awesome servant. May my enemies spin on my face so I could bless and pray for them. The mystery of Christmas is this. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. If you want to find your life, you're going to need to lose it. And in losing your life, you just might find it. And God does this in the most profound, beautiful story, the Christmas story. He models it for us. The power of God is revealed with a baby being born in a manger, and the power of God is revealed at the cross. And so there's probably two types of people in this room, um, and you know, that's an oversimplification, but there's maybe some of you who you haven't committed your life to following Jesus and it's just Christmas and, and you're just like, man, I just got to get to the presence. Cool. I'm not knocking that at all. But my challenge for you is this, to seriously consider the claims of Jesus. I mean, the story of, of Christmas is humanity wanted to be God and God came down to die for us. Now, that is either the greatest story ever told or it's like foolish is dumb. Like, there's no middle ground. Like, it's not like, you can't just be, oh, I don't really believe in that stuff, but I really like the story of Jesus. No. That's, it's foolish. It's not, do you know even the, the writers of the New Testament say that? They go, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this is dumb. They use the word foolish. I translate the Greek word as dumb. <laughs> so, serious consider the claims of Jesus and this story. Whether you believe in Jesus or not, you need to know that this one man with one self-sacrificing act of love has changed more hearts and minds than any other human being who has ever walked this planet. Even if you don't believe this man is even a historical figure without ever raising the sword, firing a gun, or dropping a bomb, 
This man has influenced more lives for the good than any other figure in human history. And at this single moment, there are more men, women, and children who are willing to lay down their life for this king than any other human being to ever walk this earth. So those are serious claims that you could wrestle with for the rest of this holiday season. And lastly, if you are a follower of Jesus, my closing challenge, oh, we got a last, this is the last picture. That's the last one. This is the last one. Look, look, hold on, hold on. Look at, ooh. These are all the ones you, like, that one's not that good. You're going to have to come back. There's all these cool pictures that made it all make sense. If you are a Christian, may you never get used or numb to this Christmas story. This is incredible. We had serpents poison in our veins. We defied God. We wanted to usurp his authority. He should have came and showed up with wrath and smite us like Old Testament, just chopping people. But he came as a baby to save us and give us a new way to live. Jesus just didn't die to save us. He gave us a new way to be human. I mean that. He gave us a different way to be human. The world operates with power, violence, greed, lust, self-exaltation. Jesus says you can be human differently. And in doing so, you too can share in the light of the world Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, if you've grown numb to that, I ask you to in this time commit yourself. Say, Lord, wake me up. Help me to see the wonder of this story and help me to live differently. Help me to live like you. Help me to lay down my life for those in love in small things and the large things. Now, uh, if none of this has has made sense, um, that's okay because we have a special children's presentation uh, coming up that's going to tie it all together. It's going to make it all make sense and it's going to be awesome. And you kids, by the way, have been absolutely incredible. For this long in this service, this pack, you kids, man... I want to surprise you. You get a car. You get a car. You get a car. Janine, come on up. All right. Let's have fun. Okay. I'm Janine Carini. I'm the family ministry pastor, and I always get to do the fun stuff. So if you have a little kid here and you think that they could semi be okay to come up here on the steps, this is the time where they get to come up here. Um, I'm going to ask you, though, to not come up to the tippy top because we're going to have a special presentation, and I don't want you to get stepped on. So if you want to come up here so you can see really well, and my ushers are going to come forward, and they have something for you. So when you get it, it's a glow stick. You guys know how glow sticks work, right? So when you get your glow stick, don't crack it yet. Can you remember that? Because there's going to be a special part in the story where we're going to light them. So don't light them now. And guess what? If you do, we're all going to know because you're going to glow. Because we're going to turn all the lights out. Okay? So don't be afraid of the dark. We're just going to turn them off for our special um, show. You guys ready? Okay. Everybody get one. Those tubes have to last me all day. Okay. Uh Uh-oh, don't crack them yet. I see them cracking. You're not supposed to break them yet. 
We have a special part in the story where we will light them up, okay? Don't light them up. All right, I will see you. I got to go back here and do stuff. You good? Everybody good?